Good morning. Good morning. There we are. My name is Pastor John. I'm glad you've joined us for worship today. This weekend is Memorial Day weekend. It's a time for us to be thankful who, for those who gave their lives in part to give us the freedom to gather together to worship like that and to hear from God's word. And in honor of their sacrifice and in line with the passage we're looking at today, we're not going to waste time beating around the bush. We're going right to the heart of the matter in Scripture today. In our passage, which is Mark 10, 17 through 27, Jesus is going to answer the most important question in the world. Uh, Well, other than who is Jesus, which is the title of our series, but underneath that is what must we do? What must we do to inherit to get eternal life. Now, maybe there's other questions, other problems in our lives that consume our thoughts that we think about each day, but this is really the most important question. Other questions we think about may impact our lives for the next five minutes or five days, five years, maybe at most the next five decades. But this question will impact the next five millennia and beyond. We're in this time looking at the gospel of Mark, the good news according to Mark. It's one of the books in the Bible that tells us the story of who Jesus really is. What did he care about? And what difference can he make in our lives? We're in a part of the gospel of Mark where Jesus is starting to travel and he's leaving the area he spent most of his time to head toward the capital city of Jerusalem. It's going to be the place where he will die on the cross, where his life on earth will end. So as he's on his way there, he knows he doesn't have much time left. He's talking to his disciples about what does it really mean to follow me? Last week, Pastor Tom spoke about Jesus's heart for children. And one thing Jesus said was this, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Our passage today, though, the very next passage, is going to be kind of a contrast to that. This passage last week spoke about childlike faith, and now we're going to talk about what can hinder that faith. Pastor Tom last week so beautifully described what it looks like for us to have that kind of faith. He talked about how we're all babies or infants, really, in God's sight. There's nothing we can do, nothing we can bring to God, but we just have to have faith and dependence on him. Our passage today is kind of presenting an objection to that. Maybe somebody hears that and they have a response. They say, well, what if, though, I'm not like a baby? What if I have a lot of wealth? What if I have a lot of talents and abilities? What can I do with that, then? How can I use those things to earn eternal life. This is the question that a man in our passage is going to have. In Mark, he's just called a man. Uh, Matthew 19 will tell us that he's young. Luke 18, another text, will say that he's a ruler. It's often known as Jesus talking to the rich, young ruler. He wants to know, what can I do with what I have to inherit, to get eternity? And Jesus is going to tell him, I'm sorry, but there is nothing we can do to earn eternal life. Instead, all we can do is surrender our idols and trust God to do the impossible to save us. 
That's what our text will tell us. So let's go there. If you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 17. So that's Mark big 10, little 17. You can use that blue Bible in the seat in front of you. We'll also have it up on the screen. Once you are there, I would ask that if you are able, if you could please stand to honor the reading of God's word and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today. This is, again, Mark 10, starting verse 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 17 says, And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished. They said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man... It is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we talk about the most important question there is, what must we do to inherit eternal life to be saved? You would drive your answer into our hearts, that there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves. And instead, God, the only thing we can do is repent, surrender our idols, and instead have faith, trust in you to do the most impossible thing in the world, to save a sinner. Thank you that you're able to do that because of the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. May we hear his words, may we see him clearly, May he increase, may we decrease, so that we can see the truth that salvation is only possible through you. God, may that message challenge how we live, and may it change our eternity. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Like I said, we're not beating around the bush. We go right to the heart of the matter. If we're going to understand what we need to do in order to have eternal life, then we have to understand first and foremost that there is nothing we can do. There is nothing 
we can do. This is where Jesus starts in verses 17 and 20. There is nothing we can do to earn salvation. Again, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's having a discussion with his followers. What does it mean to follow me? What does it mean to be a part of my kingdom? And as he's talking to them about this, this young man runs up to Jesus. We're told that he kneels, he falls on his knees before Jesus, and he shows him great respect. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, maybe that doesn't strike us as particularly uh, extra respectful, but he's kneeling, and by saying good teacher, that's a very unique phrase. In this part of the world, in this culture, this ancient Jewish setting, it was very rare to call a person good. You may say his actions were good, but good was a term that was just used for God. And so he's being very respectful in saying that. And then he asked a powerful question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If we were perhaps those around Jesus, maybe his disciples, this maybe would seem like somebody who's a really great potential convert for the faith, a really great follower of Jesus to have. Imagine, if you will, that somebody came in through those doors, a, someone who was incredibly wealthy, like a billionaire, who owns a tech company, or, or the biggest celebrity you can think of, just came right in those doors and said, what can I do? What must I do in order to be saved? Well, we might get a little excited about that. Wow, this person's so powerful. They're so wealthy. They have so many followers and influence. This is great that they're asking a question like this but we'll see that Jesus sees something else in this man's question. And we can see it too if we look closely at the words that are there. He doesn't say, how can I be saved? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What action can I take? What thing can I do to secure my eternal future? And Jesus is going to drive home to him, kind of in a roundabout way, but he's going to get him to see that he's starting at the wrong place. If you want to think about heaven starting with, what can I do to make sure I get there? That's the wrong place to start. And so Jesus tries to get this man right from the beginning to change his focus, to instead turn his attention to God, the only one who is truly good. He says in verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It wouldn't have been proper to address someone as good unless you believe that person is God. Now, we know Jesus is God, so Jesus is trying to figure out about this man. Does he actually believe this, or is he just saying that to get to his real question? This man needed to believe in God, not trust his wealth. He was actually blind to his true situation. He wasn't as close to God as he thought but very far away. Now, th this verse 18, some people take it to twist it that Jesus didn't think he was God. That's just going too far there. Jesus is God, and this young man was more right than he knew. He is the answer. Jesus is the source of eternal life. We can see this many places in Scripture. One place is in John 5. It says, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. God gives eternal life and Jesus gives eternal life. But back in our passage, Jesus tries to meet this man where he is, tries to speak to him on his terms. He 
tries to agree with the way the young man's thinking about it, that there's something he can do so that he can show him that he actually falls short. And in verse 19, Jesus reminds the man of God's standards so that he can evaluate himself. He quotes from the Ten Commandments. We'd find them in the Old Testament in Exodus 20. He's quoting some of the later ones, like 5 through 10. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness or give a false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He lists them out for him. Now, the one interesting one there is do not defraud, because that might not sound like one of the Ten Commandments to us. And maybe Jesus is combining some of the words from the Eighth and the Ninth Commandment, talking about not stealing or not bearing false witness and application of it. Maybe this young man's wealth maybe arrived at him in an ill-gotten way, where we're not really sure there. But the point is, Jesus, he, the young man hears Jesus saying this thing, and he responds with... And, really incredible response. He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. I have done all of these since I was a young boy. And if we look closely at them, let's, let's try to give this young man, man the benefit of the doubt here. On an outward way, it's possible for him to have lived a life where he didn't kill anyone, he didn't commit adultery, he didn't steal something that he knew belonged to something else, Maybe he was very intentional in a public setting to not give a false witness or testimony. Maybe as far as he knew, he didn't defraud anyone, and he always spoke to his father and mother with respect. He's saying, I was very diligent. I did not commit a major sin. I had an outwardly disciplined life. I have a very good reputation in the community. But we'll see that Jesus is much more concerned with this young man's heart. And even if this man didn't have a problem with possessions and wealth, he clearly has a problem with some self-righteousness. He thinks because he's done these things, he's on the good path. His words, though, sound kind of similar to the Apostle Paul, but look at the key difference of how Paul describes himself. This is in a letter to the Philippian church. Paul says, though, he says that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, meaning he's confident in what he has done. Paul goes so far to say, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, like this young man, I have more. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to God's law, I was a Pharisee. I strove to keep all of it and go beyond it. As to zeal, I persecuted these Christians, the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying, as far as you can tell, I did everything God said. But look at the key difference in Paul's heart. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Yes, it looked like I kept all these laws, but that gain is nothing compared to Jesus. Before the one true God, the one who is perfect, holy, and just, what we do doesn't matter. It's impossible for what we do to add up to God's holiness, his goodness, his rightness. I like how one pastor I was reading, Jason Meyer, put it. He says, God's commands are not a ladder, but a mirror. The Ten Commandments are not steps you climb to arrive at, yes, I have a great relationship with God. No, the Ten Commandments and everything else God says is a mirror to look at yourself and see just how short of that 
you fall, that you are not as good as you think you are. The reality, as Romans 3.23 tells us, is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person, everyone, without exception, sins. We're hostile to God in our hearts. At the end of the day, we live for ourselves. If we're using God's terms, we would have to say that there is no truly good person. When we say someone's a good person, we mean they do more good things or nice things than they do bad things. But in God's sight, he is good and none of us are good like he is. And that's why what we need to do is to trust God, to repent, to turn from sin and believe in him. If we don't understand that we are sinners, that we're not perfect, that we fall short, then we're not ready to hear the gospel, the good news. And that seems to be where this young man was. As one pastor, J.C. Ryle, put it, so long as we think that we can keep the law of God, Christ profits us nothing. If you open the Bible and you read part of it, you say, yeah, I got that, then, then you are far from where Christ needs us to be. This is why we started here. If we're going to understand what we need to do to inherit eternal life and be saved, we have to start with acknowledging that there is nothing we can do. And this is the key difference between what the Bible says and what every other religion will tell you. They'll say, here's a list of things. You do this, that is how you get eternity or a better next life. True Christianity, though, is about what Jesus has done. And so if we want eternal life, the first thing we must do is surrender our idols. Another way to put it is repent. Uh, sometimes when we're talking about simply, I'll say repent and believe, but the kind of thing Jesus drives out in this passage is surrendering our idols, our idols. In verse 21 of our passage, we have a beautiful picture of Christ's caring heart, even for a sinner. Just remember where we are here. This is a young man who has come before Jesus, who we would say is God, the Lord incarnate, perfectly holy and good. Not only has he never done anything wrong, that wouldn't even make sense in his mind to do sin. And here's a young man, a sinful human being, who has the boldness to come before God and say, God, I am perfect. Now, I don't like to think of myself as an angry person, but if I was Jesus and somebody came up to me, a mere human came up to me and said, I'm perfect, I think I'd respond quite angrily to that. I think, you know, I may think about, hey, there's some storm clouds coming. Maybe the lightning bolts need to find their way here. But that's not what Jesus does. Even though this young man said probably the most arrogant thing anyone could say to God, instead, Jesus looks at him closely he searches his heart, and he knows that this young man is a sinner who's just exaggerating his own righteousness. He can see that this man is so self-deluded, he believes himself to be a good person. And so out of his genuine love, Jesus speaks directly to the young man's heart. Instead of just bringing wrath down on him, or instead of just excusing him and letting him go, Jesus speaks a cutting remark that can tear down the misconceptions this man has. Not because he doesn't like the man, but out of his great love for him. He could have gotten angry, he could have argued with him, well, you, young man, do not understand God's commandments. But instead, he goes straight to his problem 
shows him love by telling the truth. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. There's one thing you haven't done. There is one sin that still controls you. He says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then you can come and follow me. Jesus calls this young man to give up his earthly treasures to receive heavenly treasures. He tells him you can take up your cross and die to wealth, and if you do that, you will find eternal life. It's really Jesus is asking him, I can see that the thing you value most in all the world is money, and if that was gone, would you still follow me? The British pastor Charles Spurgeon put it this way, what was the one thing this young man lacked? It was the full surrender of his heart to God in Christ. He had not done that. He did everything right on the outside, but he had not given his heart to God. And by saying what Jesus is saying, he's giving the young man a test. He's trying to prove whether God has this man's heart. And the young man fails that test. He may have kept the commandments on the outside, but at the end of the day, he had really broken the very first commandment. This is the first commandment from the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. And if we mess that one up, then it doesn't matter if we do the rest. We're still guilty. We're still held accountable for all of it. At the end of the day, this man, as good as he was, as good a reputation he had, he was an idolater. He worshiped the false god of money, and he valued that more than God, and so he was separated from God. Jesus could see clearly, uh, money is this man's idol, this man's God, and so if he is genuine in turning from sin and coming to me, what that would look like for him would be if he sold all that he had and he gave it to the poor. If he gave up that thing he valued the most, that would reveal that his heart truly had changed. He needed to stop living for himself and the things that held him back and give everything to God. And this is a really extreme picture, but it also just reveals to us how easily it is for us to live and worship idols, false God. We can become captivated with the lesser things of this world and so miss where our focus should be. Friends, if there is anything or any person that you live for most of all that you couldn't live without, then that thing or that person is your idol. And regardless of how you think of yourself, you are actually a slave to that thing. You do not possess that thing. You don't have it even if you think you do. The truth is it possesses you. It controls you and it pushes you away from God. The reality we see in this young man is each of us is enslaved to some form of an idol. Something can captivate us and we need to repent, turn away from that. We need to give up whatever that particular sin or temptation is. That can look different for each of us, what it looks like to repent, turn to God. Maybe for someone, it's, it's giving up a particular drug or beverage. Maybe it means abandoning an activity that we enjoy, but that we know keeps us from God. 
Maybe it means we stop investing so much time in a relationship that we know gets all our focus instead of the Lord. Nothing should stand between us and coming to God. He must be first. But for this man, money was his idol. Now, before I talk about that a little more, I'd like to take a little kind of sidebar because this is a very extreme verse that Jesus says here. He he says, he tells this man, I mean, look at the words, go sell all you have, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven. On the surface, that seems to be saying, if you want to go to heaven, you need to go sell all you have and give it to the poor. So the question could be, should everyone sell all they have, give it away? Is that what Jesus is telling all of us to do? Well, I think a, a wise way to approach that is with two words that you could put in your outline. No, but. No, but. Let me talk about each of those. No, no, Jesus is not saying that every single person needs to sell all they have right now and give it to the poor if you want to go to heaven. We read elsewhere in the Bible that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not what we do. It's not you sell things and then, yes, that earns you your place. So no, everyone does not have to do that. But, but everyone who knows God should be willing to do that. And if we're honest, probably most of us should be giving, using more of our resources than we do to help others. Just throwing money away at something doesn't accomplish anything, but our money, our resources can be used for God's glory. Giving it to those in need is a sign of those whose heart has been changed by God. Let me present a contrast for you. So we've just seen this man. Jesus says, go sell all you have, and then you can know me. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. But then look at somebody else. This is in Luke 19, a man, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Look what Zacchaeus does. He stood up. He said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And look what Jesus says. Today, salvation has come to this house. He didn't say, Zacchaeus, you have to give away everything. No, Zacchaeus, out of his own heart, said, I'm going to give half of what I have. And if, when I've defrauded people, I'm going to give four times the amount back. I don't know what that added up to, but I imagine it was probably close to two-thirds or three-quarters of what he had. It's not everything, but it's showing Zacchaeus's heart has been changed, unlike the man we read about today, whose heart has not been changed. So when you see the question here on, on your sheet or look at it, where Jesus says, sell all you have, give to the poor, I think it's dangerous if we look at that and we just say, okay, so I don't have to do that. I'm saved by faith. Great. I can move on. I don't think we should dismiss it so quickly. I feel we should take the conviction of his words here. Those who are listening to me right now, probably 99 plus percent of the people who ever hear this message are Americans. And if you're an American, then you are part of the richest 1% that the world, that history has ever known. We need to think very carefully about how we use what God has given us, how we engage the culture around us. The culture we're in emphasizes consumerism, buy, 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 buy. You need to buy more things, have more money to get more things, to be safe, to make yourself happy. Just this week, I was, I don't, I was probably watching something online and, and an ad popped up. It was a mom and her two kids were fighting with each other. They, they were having a conflict. 
And the mom couldn't figure out how to stop this brother, these two brothers from fighting each other. But then finally she figured it out. She went to amazon.com. She bought two tents that they could place over their beds and then they were able to entertain themselves. Do you see the message there? The message is if you buy things from Amazon, then all will be good in your life. That's the culture we live in. And that, that seemed like really in your face to me, but we get that all the time. If you get this, then you're happy. You need the money, get the money, get this, then you're all right. That type of prosperity, that freedom to be able to say, yes, I'll buy two tents for my kids, that is a dangerous level of prosperity. Perhaps this type of culture and this type of wealth, maybe that contributes to why people leave the faith because they don't understand what it means to be dependent on God because they can take care of themselves. But the truth is everything we have has been given to us by God. He's entrusted it to us. Yes, in part to provide for us. And so for most of us, it would be foolish to just throw everything away. We're called to use it wisely. However, giving away what we have for God's purposes, that's usually a wise investment. Everything belongs to God anyway, so we should trust him more than our wealth. The kind of verse we read now is not the only time Jesus says something like this. Look at Luke 12. This is Jesus talking again, Luke 12, 33 and 34. He says, sell your possessions, give to the needy. By doing that, you provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think especially for us, 21st century Americans, passages like ours, these words of Jesus, these are ones we need to hear and think about a lot more. Believers throughout history have gathered this. They've, they've grasped it. This kind of radical love and giving has characterized God's people. So how do we do it? I, I read something from one pastor, Kent Hughes, I thought was a great application of it. He put it this way. He says, as our income rises, we must give to God's work in such a way that it affects our lifestyle. We give in such a way that it impacts our lifestyle. And he gets clear about it. So there are some things we do not buy. There are some places we do not go because we have given so much to God as he directed us. I think that's a great way to think about it. How do we know if we're viewing money the right way, if we're at a place where there's just some things we can't get? Not that we've forced ourselves into poverty, but that we're at a place that there's something, I'd like to get this, I'd like to go here, but I don't have the money because I'm using my money for God's kingdom. Now, when he says, as he, as God directed us, I'm not speaking about God giving us a voice from heaven, magic words, feelings in our heart. I'm, I'm saying we've seen needs. We've seen ways that we can use what we have for God's kingdom, and we take action. So that was a little sidebar or rabbit trail, but I feel that's important because that, that's a very powerful verse that he says. But let's go back to our passage. This is the challenge Jesus puts before this young man. If you are going to repent, it will look like you selling all you have and giving it to the poor. How is this man going to respond? Is he going to turn from his idols? And in verse 22, his true heart is revealed. And unfortunately, he's disheartened. 
He's dismayed. His, his face fell when he heard this. And instead, he went away sorrowful, sad, and grieving because he had great possessions. Maybe he had a lot of money somewhere. Maybe he owned a lot of property. Whatever it was, he was unwilling to be separated from it. When he came to Jesus, he thought, I have all this wealth. I've done all this right things. If Jesus tells me to give a, a chunk of money to this or that, I can do that and then we'll be great. I can buy my way into God's love. He wanted Jesus and eternity without giving up what he loved most in this world. This is such a powerful contrast when we put it together with the passage Pastor Tom talked about last week. These children came to Jesus with nothing, bringing him nothing, offering him nothing, but they loved him. They were dependent on him. And here is this man who instead relied on his possessions. His possessions were his identity. And this story that had such a promising start, it had this man coming saying, what must I do to be saved? That seems so promising. It instead has a sad ending. This man received God's word. He received from God's love. This is what a response looks like. And instead, he rejected it. He did not repent. He continued trusting his wealth, his earthly treasures over Christ's heavenly treasures. He was a man who you would look at and thought he had everything, but after hearing from Jesus, he left with nothing. He thought his money was worth more than Jesus. He ended up becoming like those that the Old Testament talks about. The book of Ezekiel speaks about people listening to the prophet. It says, they come to you as people come. They sit before you as my people. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. There's lustful talk in their mouths, and their heart is set on their gain. This man heard what Jesus said, but he said, I'm not doing that. I care more about my money. Friends, this shows us that you can say all the right things, you can do all the right religious things, but your heart can still be very far from God. And like this man, wealth could be a major barrier that can keep you from entering God's kingdom. Let's think about it closely. Maybe you are like this man here today. Maybe you're somewhat interested in Jesus. After all, you're here today in a church, or perhaps you're watching this. You you have some interest in faith, but making this Christianity, this Jesus, everything about your life, the center of your life, that that seems a little excessive. So instead, you you try to live a good life. You try to follow God. You would say, you're not a bad person. You do mostly good things. Perhaps you believe heaven is a real place, and maybe you're willing to entertain the idea that hell is real too, but if it is, you've done a lot of good. You want to go to heaven, perhaps even desperately so. And Maybe you came today wondering, well, so what more do I need? How can I be sure? How do I know when I've done enough to know that I can go to heaven? And if that's you or you're something like that, then I, I want to say two things. First, I, I appreciate your heart to know God, your interest in spiritual things. Absolutely, I'm grateful you're listening to me, but I I do have to warn you that you are in a very dangerous place. Interest in Jesus is not enough. Pastor Spurgeon again said, desire will not 
quench thirst. Neither will it stay hunger. You must take Christ and live on him or you shall die. If you're thirsty, you can wish and hope for water as much as you want, but that's not going to satisfy you. If you're hungry, you can, you can hope, desire, intend to get food as much as you want, but that's not going to satisfy the hunger. You can want God as much as you want, but you have to take Christ, live on, trust him, depend on him, or you will die. It is not enough to simply desire to go to heaven. If all you do is desire to go, then the truth is that sin still controls you. And if you've not definitively turned from sin, surrendered your idols and turned toward God, then you will be separated from the Lord. He wants to be your Lord, master, your boss, your king, preeminent first in your life. Look what Paul says in Colossians about Jesus. He says that he, Jesus, is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is first in the world. He deserves to be first in your life. So let me ask you, is Jesus preeminent in your life? Is he first in your life? He must be if you are going to be saved. If he's not, then make it so. That thing that you value most of all in the world, that's probably what you'll have to give up or be truly willing to give up in order to know God. And the, the reality that, that, that breaks my heart, that makes it it's so hard to stand here, is I look at this room and I know that there's probably, there's probably someone here, if not multiple people, that you will miss heaven because you value things more than God. Friends, please don't, don't let that be you. I know things look nice. I know they bring a feeling of joy, but it is not worth it in the end. This short life you have now is not going to last forever. In fact, it could all be over for you today or tomorrow. Follow Jesus. Make your life about him. Repent, turn from, surrender those idols, surrender to Jesus because he is worth it. This is the message that those who know God grasp. Somebody who grasped that was a uh, pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. He passed away just last week, but he was a man who truly understood Jesus. And I just so happened to come across a quote of his as I was preparing for this message. In this quote, Keller is imagining if Jesus is speaking to us after we've read this. So this is Jesus speaking to us. And he says, if I gave away my big all, my, my home in heaven, my relationship, close relationship with God, if I gave that away to get you, can you give away your little all to follow me? I won't ask you to do anything I haven't already done. I, Jesus, I'm the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate wealth to get you. Now you need to give away yours to get me. Not as something that buys us God, but as turning away from that thing that keeps us chained and bound to instead trust in him. And what Jesus has to give you is worth 
so much more than what you have. Surrender it to him. Give it to him. And we surrender those idols. We turn away from those things that hold us back. And what do we do on the other hand? So we let something go. What do we grab onto then? We must trust God to do the impossible. Trust God to do the impossible. If you want a one-word thing, the surrendering the idols, that was repenting, and now we need to believe to trust God. In verse 23, Jesus now turns his focus to his disciples. He is going to make sure they understand the significance of what has just happened in this conversation. Look what he says to them. How difficult, how hard will it be for those who are rich, for those who have wealth, to enter the kingdom of God? Why is it so hard? It's what we've been talking about. Wealth makes us feel like we are in control. It keeps us from trusting in God. And the reality is the wealthier you are, the more you have in this life, the harder it is to come to true faith. Because God calls us to see ourselves as sinners separated from him, as poor and needy. If we don't see ourselves that way, then we have a very difficult time understanding the salvation that he offers. And that's why true Christianity has always appealed mostly to those who are weak and poor in the earth because they understand this attitude already. They understand what God desires. And the Bible speaks to that. Look at these two passages. In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes that God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the attitude we need, understanding ourselves as poor, low, and despised. That puts us in the position to understand what Jesus offers. But that's hard. It, it was, it's hard for us now. It was hard for them then. <laughs> in verse 24, the disciples are amazed. They're astonished that Jesus would even say this. What he's saying is totally against the culture around them. Their culture in particular, the Judaism of their day, said the wealthier you are proves how close you are to God. If you have wealth, that means God has blessed you. Wealthier equals holier. And Jesus says, no, in many cases, actually the opposite is true. Wealth is often a handicap, a hindrance to eternal life. Now, don't misunderstand. The Bible tells us that wealth is a blessing. Absolutely. But someone's external wealth does not reveal that they have a faithful heart. And so in verse 24, Jesus tells his spiritual children, it is difficult, it is hard to enter the kingdom of God. Because we have to be born again, completely changed. And so eternal life is something that not many end up finding. Jesus would say elsewhere in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he would instruct people who would follow him to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 
This is speaking so much to human nature. We want to find our own way. We want to earn our way. We want to be able to purchase, to, to get there, to achieve on our own, but we cannot buy salvation. We need helpless dependence on God, on Jesus Christ. And if we haven't got the picture, Jesus goes on back in our passage in verse 25 with a well-known illustration. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He points to the largest animal most of them could think about, the largest animal they saw in that part of the world, the camel. And he says it's easier for that camel to go through the tiny hole of a needle that you could hold in your hand than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. His point is it's humanly impossible. Now, years ago, there was a story going around about that in Jerusalem, there was a gate called the eye of a needle and a camel could get through, through there. But historians now, biblical scholars say that that's something that was made up long after Jesus rode. And it's actually taking away from the point of the passage. His point is that trusting in riches keeps us out of God's kingdom. It's impossible to trust in riches and to enter God's kingdom. And the rest of the Bible says that. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, at this point, though, you might be tempted to tune out a little bit. You might say, well, okay, pastor, but, but I don't serve for money. I don't live for money. So th this isn't something that's being addressed to me. But I would challenge us to think a little bit harder at that, to really look at our actions. If our bank accounts are full of money that we don't need, that we just hoard for ourselves, maybe we are trusting in money. If we constantly think about money or how we could get more of it, maybe we are trusting in money. If money controls us, Jesus says, then we are not on the road to heaven. And again, when the disciples hear this in verse 26, they're even more greatly, exceedingly astonished and amazed that they only have one question. They say, then who can be saved? They were taught the richest were closest to heaven. It's a temptation we can feel today. If we see somebody who has a lot of wealth or a lot of power, we think, oh, they must be doing things right with their life. But Jesus says, no, that's not true. And so they say, well, if even the rich can't be saved, then who in the world can be? And Jesus tells them, only those saved by God. He looks at them closely to again emphasize how serious this is. And he tells them, with man, with men, with people, it is impossible. It's humanly impossible for us to save ourselves because we cannot earn it. It's impossible to come to God while trusting in riches or anything other than Jesus. But, then he says, but. But this is not the case with God. For all things are possible with God. Everything, every miracle, every action, every salvation is possible because of God. Any person can know God's saving grace. Anyone can be saved. This testimony of God's power we can see in the Old Testament. The book of Job, he says, I know, God, that you can do all things. The book of Jeremiah, well-known passage, says, Ah, Lord God, it's you who've made the heavens, the earth, by your great power, your outstretched arm, 
Nothing is too hard or too difficult for you. Now those verses in ours that all things are possible, that doesn't mean God's going to do whatever we want, whatever we ask all the time. This is a very clear context. They asked him, who can be saved? And Jesus said, all things are possible with God. We cannot save ourselves, but God can save us. That's the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus. You cannot save yourself, but Jesus came. He died so that you would have a way to salvation. He died so that if you turned from sin and trusted in him, you could have eternal life. He died and rose again so that the life he has, he can give to you. It's not just something we decide. It's something God must put in our hearts. He must change our hearts to grasp this truth. As the book of Ephesians says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And let me ask you, have you received this gift? Have you received this gift from God because of what Christ has done? This young man we read about, he said something that's very popular. He said, what must I do? Surely there's some box I can check to get to heaven. But he was wrong. There was nothing that he can do. What he needed to do was surrender his idols and trust in God. Have you done that? Have you surrendered that thing that controls you? And have you trusted in God to do the most impossible thing in the world, change your heart and save you? If you haven't, then I would encourage you to talk to me about that today or talk to someone else and let us share more with you about what it looks like to repent, to turn, to admit your sin, instead to believe and trust in Jesus. And if you have done that, if he has changed your heart, well, then that's why we gather here. We gather together to praise him. So let's do that now because he alone is worthy.